leaving that knowing where, where many of you are at this morning getting to sing that it is well. But thank God we do, we do serve a God who is faithful to restore each and every one of us through the midst of the things that we are, we are going through. So we are going to continue looking at that this morning as we are in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing throughout the book of Exodus, building off of the series that we just did where we were, we were talking about all the foundational stuff. And, and we left off with this question of, well, if this is kind of you know, the mission, the vision, the values, the definition of who we want to be as disciples, if this is the direction that we are going then what does it look like for us to be the people of God? And we're, we're reading through Exodus because this is the story of the formation of the people of God. Like, we can read through the New Testament Acts, and that shows us the picture of the church. You can read through the Old Testament version of Acts, Exodus, as, as this is what God is doing in the life of calling his people to be his people, and then the story of what that looks like for the rest of their lives. So we are continuing in, in Exodus 2. Um, because we're building off of what we talked about last week at the end of Exodus 1, where you know, if, if it's true that God is faithful to restore his creation and that we are called to trust his work, we, we said as our application from last week, then we're people of restoration, which means we have to be able to admit where things are broken, right, in, in our own lives, identify and admit our brokenness, and then we have to seek his restoration. Like, if I could tell that I'm not right, then, then more than you know, fixing myself on, on all these other issues, I need to be right with God above everything else. So Exodus chapter 2 picks this up and continues, and it shows what is this practical picture of restoration looking like. It's, it's now the story of what is God doing. If we're called to trust his restoration, what is he doing in order to restore us? And church, I think before we dive into the text, I, we need to understand we... I think we, we don't think about restoration in the same terms that God does at times. And maybe, maybe this is just me, okay? Maybe you don't have this problem. But when I think about what it looks like to be restored, I typically think along lines of action, right? Like an event or a movement or like something big is taking place and that is fixing everything. Uh, I mean, we love this in the superhero narrative, right? That something outside of us is going to swoop in and, and save the day and fix everything on our behalf. Uh, sometimes we also like the idea that we might be able to fix things ourselves. You know, the old idea we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But when we, when we think this way, it affects how we read the text, right? So if we understand restoration as an action or an event or a movement then when we come to the text and we read what's taking place in Exodus 2, we're going to be thinking along the lines of what is God doing that, you know, like I should be able to do today myself, like I should be able to be active in my restoration. Or we look at this text expecting, okay, God, like what are you doing for me? You know, if, if you are the one that's at work doing the restoration and I'm expecting this big event, then what are the events and the movements and things taking place in this text that would restore me today, okay? And, and I think that's not what we've seen in Exodus chapter 1. So we just have to be very careful as we read chapter 2 to understand that, that God's restoration is less about an event. It's less about a movement. It's, it's really not an action. God's restoration is going to come through a person. Exodus chapter 2, more than it is the story of what God is doing, is God bringing 
a person onto the scene through whom God is going to do all of his restorative work. It is the story of Moses. And so, church, we're going to see this today as our main point. God made his restoration possible, and here's some big fancy words, through a consecrated image bearer, through someone made in his image that he had set apart for the purpose of of doing this work. God made his restoration possible through a consecrated image bearer who would bring justice and deliverance to his people. This is the picture of restoration that we see in Scripture. We're going to begin, and we're going to cover the entire chapter, first looking at uh, the first ten verses. So this is Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This one, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Father, help us to understand your story, your word this morning, God. Father, when we think about what it is to be right with you, God, our our minds go towards action. What are you doing? What do I need to do? Where do we need to go? What, What things should we involve ourselves in, God? And we get... We get so wrapped up in the action-oriented that we miss out, Lord, that right after, right after in your word, you introduce this idea that you are going to restore your people. You bring a person into this world. Father, that that is going to dramatically change the way that we see who you are, that we see how you restore us. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word, God, and to understand it well this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2, you see right away this this idea that Moses has been set apart for a special purpose, which which is all that this this fancy word consecrated means, right? To consecrate something is just to set it apart for a specific purpose. So there's a couple different places in just the first 10 verses. You see in the life of Moses, God is clearly at work in his life setting him apart for the purpose of restoring his people. It begins in verse 1 where you see that Moses is born to two parents who are Levites. Now, we, the Levites will get their assigned role a little bit later in this book, but if you skip ahead a couple chapters, you find out that God has set apart the tribe of Levi from all the other tribes of Israel as the priesthood tribe meaning that the Levites were responsible for making sure that the people of God had a right relationship with God, 
Okay, these, these were the people that lived in the temples. These were the people that, you know, slaughtered all the animals for the sacrifices. These, these were the people that were supposed to be the shining example to God's people of what it looked like to be right with God. So right away, we see in Moses' birth, he's being set apart. That there is a special purpose for this, this man, Moses. In verse 6, you see again that as, as the daughter of Pharaoh finds him, Pharaoh's daughter spares Moses' life. Now, now, why this was such a big deal is if, if you guys remember at the very end of Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh is hunting down all the Hebrew male babies in the land. And so not, not only is this somebody in the, the throne room that would have spared the child, this is his own daughter that saves this baby. Now, you can imagine if it's Pharaoh, if one of his servants is in the temple and, and probably finds Moses, it, it may be easier for him to say, well, you know, I know that you're an Egyptian, but you're saving one of the Hebrew babies, and we had said we're getting rid of them, but it's his own daughter. I mean, I, I already, Charlie can, can look at me, and I'll be like, okay, yes, I, I got you, whatever you need. Just, just that father-daughter relationship some of you are aware of. Daughters... Daughters do have a, a powerful sway over their father. And, and right here, I don't think it's an accident, you see Pharaoh's own daughter spares Moses' life. So and even in that, there is a picture of a Moses. There's something different about him. God is, is working to set him apart. In verses 2 through 4, you see, and, and I think this is, guys, this is, this is just really cool, right? Last week, we talked about how God is faithful to restore and the application of that for us is to trust his restorative work. This is exactly what you see in verses 2 through 4 with Moses' mother. The, the order that Pharaoh gave at the end of Exodus chapter 1 in verse 22, he says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, Moses' mother... What do you see in verses 2 through 4? says she hides him when she saw that he's a fine child, but when she couldn't hide him any longer, she put him in a basket and put him in the Nile. So even though there's this horrific law in place, ordering all of the babies to be put into the river, you see the faithfulness of Moses' mother to entrust her son to God that she would follow that horrific order. She put her baby three months old, in a basket and lets it go in the river. But then in verse 4, we get this interesting commentary that Moses' sister follows the baby down the river. And she sees where it is going. So it's a picture of obedience, but it's also a picture of, of I'm expecting something's going to happen. Right, like Moses' mother has been faithful to give up her baby, to follow the horrific order that Pharaoh's given, but she sends the daughter afterwards because she's expecting God is going to do something through this child. I, I don't know what, and, and even in me being faithful to, to put my child in a river, knowing he will probably die, I'm still going to send his sister after him because I'm expecting God to do something. Again, a picture that God is setting apart Moses for a specific job, a task that we've seen introduced in Exodus chapter 1 is this, this ability to make our restoration possible. And then you get the, the cherry on the top almost at the end in verses 7 through 10 where you see that Pharaoh's daughter, after she saves Moses' life, she asks, 
the person that's standing right there, which happens to be Moses' sister, hey, can you go get somebody to nurse this baby? And Moses' sister says, okay, I'll just go get his mother. So even in Moses' mother giving up her son, she still gets to raise him. And you almost see that as an encouragement to where Moses' mother gives him up a second time at the end of the chapter, where after the child grows, she brings him back to Pharaoh's daughter. I, I could imagine if, if we cheated death the first time by my son should not be alive, but I've put him in the river, and he's alive, and not only is he alive, he's back with me. How hard would it be for Moses' mother to give him up a second time back to Pharaoh? Pharaoh's ordered all the Hebrew males to be killed. He could find out that Moses is a Hebrew male and still have him killed later. And yet, and yet, Moses' mother gives him up even a second time. Church, it is, this story is a beautiful picture of all the different ways that God is, is at work through a consecrated image bearer to make our restoration possible. And, and I ask you, where else in Scripture do we hear a story kind of like this, right? Where else in Scripture do you hear the story of God in his, in his work to make our restoration possible with his people? Where else do you see God bring a baby into the world, into a very broken home? I mean, this, this is what you see in Christ. The angel Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. This is Luke 1, 31 through 33. Another picture, church, that the restoration work God desires to do in each of us does not begin with this action, this event, this movement, but with a person through a consecrated image bearer. And if this is true, church, I think this changes the way that we, we think about the Christian life. I think it makes the Christian life less about what are we supposed to do and more about who are we supposed to be. Because if God is doing his restorative work through not an event but a person, then God is showing us, I care more about who you are than just about getting you to comply with, with, with some set of, of life things I have for you to do. And, and I think, church, we should be encouraged that we are not the only, the only people that would read this story and miss out on something like this because the first century Jews did the exact same thing. And when they studied the Old Testament, many came to the conclusion that this Messiah, who would be Jesus Christ, when he comes, he's going to be an a earthly, uh, earthly power figure. Right, that, that he's going to literally come to earth. He's going to gather all the people who are you know, of Jewish descent, of Israelite descent, and he's going to establish a physical earthly kingdom. And so that's, that's why so many of them are confused when they see Jesus teaching and healing, but then kind of like ducking back into hiding or, or teaching them to, to submit even to earthly authorities. They're like, but, but aren't you supposed to be establishing a kingdom? And Jesus tells them this in John 18, 36. When he's before Pilate, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, to the people who were trying to kill me. But my kingdom is not from this 
world. So many of the first century Jews were expecting the Messiah, God's act of deliverance to, to come in an action, in an event, in a movement. And so they were looking for this. They missed it, church, because they missed a picture of what we see in Exodus this morning, what we see throughout the Old Testament. When God restores his people, he raises up a person, a consecrated image bearer to do the work. This is what we see in the book of Judges. This is what we see throughout the lineage of the kings. This is what you see in the prophets. When God's people are broken from him, the work that God does is he comes to them. He sends someone in his likeness to them to call them back into a right relationship, church. So if, if God works at this personal level, if, if God comes to us showing us what it is like to live with him, church, then, then our, our life, truly, honestly, is, is less about what are we just supposed to do and is more about, as Christians, who are we to be. And so practically, it means that when we respond to our world, church, it's, it's the same thing as last week. Trusting God that he will lead us to do his restoration work, it means we bear God's image, right? That, that we are not called necessarily to, to do the events, to do the actions, to do the, these movements that we think bring deliverance. We are called to bear God's image to his people, to his world. And, and this is one of the values, right, that, that we talked about in our series. We say we value the image of God in ourselves and in others, that if, if the Christian life truly is more about who am I supposed to be than what am I supposed to do, then I need to value what does it look like to bear God's image. And what does it look like for me to help other people bear God's image? Our response to anything, it just begins with how can I bear God's image in this situation? And, and church, that, that may not sound as practical as we would like it to be. I mean, sometimes it's easier for us to say, like, here's three or four things that we just need to do in order to bear God's image. But church, it, it is much, much, much more freeing to just be called to bear God's image than to go and do something. Because, guys, you, you are all very different. God has, has gifted and has skilled you in ways that, that nobody else is. So when God has called you to respond to the situations you have in your life through bearing his image, you guys get to do that in unique and different ways that, that none of us can. And, and, and doing that gets to show our world a, a million, billion different pictures of, of what does God look like? Who is he? What, is, what does he desire of us? So this is why God makes his restoration possible through a consecrated image bearer. It's, it's to show the world who he is and to remind us what he has called us to live is, is less about what are we doing and more about who we are. But this practically, as, as God is raising up Moses to do this deliverance work, he, he points out two very specific things that this, this messianic figure is going to do, which, which we're going to look at now in the back half of chapter 2. Beginning now in verse 11 and reading down through verse 15. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, well, surely the thing is known. So when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So now, as we're introduced to Moses, God's restoration work coming in the life of a person, now we get to see what is this work that God is, is trying to accomplish. And it begins by showing he is bringing justice to his people. The first thing the consecrated image bearer does is he brings justice to God's people. Verse 11, you see that Moses, at this point, he's aware that he's a Hebrew. He's aware of his Israelite heritage. He's aware that he has been adopted into the Egyptian family. And so he starts to recognize, if I am one of the Israelites, there's injustice everywhere that is being done to the Israelites. He, he sees one being beaten by an Egyptian in verse 11, and he responds in verse 12 by going to stand up for the Israelite by, by killing the Egyptian, which we're going to talk more on that later. In verse 13 and 14, you see now he sees two, two Hebrews struggling together, and he, he realizes one of them is in the wrong. He steps in to try to intervene and say, hey, Look, you guys are on the same team. Why are you fighting with one another? And the intervention is not as welcome this time. You see, they look at Moses and they're like, uh, who made you lord over us? Also, are you, you going to kill us like you did to the last guy? It's, it's, it's not a welcome response that they give to Moses. And Moses realizes, oh man, if, if these people know, I didn't see anybody last time when I killed the Egyptian man, if I didn't see anybody and these people know, then probably everybody knows. And he finds out that, yeah, Pharaoh does know, verse 15. Pharaoh's not very happy about it. And now Pharaoh is going after Moses. So Moses flees to the land of Midian. And now I'm, uh, as we're unpacking this church, I need, I need to give you the disclaimer that there is, we could fill a whole sermon series talking about God's justice and what it looks like, okay? So, so when we're talking about God's justice this morning, I'm, I'm just going to keep it to what we're seeing right here in this text. So, so this is not necessarily meant to be comprehensive, but this is what we see about God's justice in these verses. You see that in, in Moses' life, God's justice is costly, that as he is standing for the Hebrew, is he standing for the life of the Hebrew, it, it cost him his status and his authority. It's partially why Moses is looking around to see if anybody is about to witness what he's going to do, because he knows it's going to cost him his position within the kingdom. It's going to cost him his reputation with, with everybody around him. You see that God's justice is not only costly, but it's relational. Moses is not attempting to, to take care of all the plight of the peoples at one moment. He sees something that is not right in front of him, and he is addressing it head on. And, and at its core, you see what God's justice is, is at its core concerned with is preserving life, which is a little ironic considering what Moses does. But at its core, God's justice is intended to preserve Life. What riles Moses up is he is seeing life being beaten, being oppressed, being persecuted. This is what Moses chooses to stand for. It's the exact same picture that God sees us in our sin. He sees us in our, in our brokenness. 
in the, the plight, the death that we have awaiting for us because we have been broken apart from God. And it is out of this that God has chosen to come and restore us. And it's hard for us to, to even consider justice in this light church because we, we don't like things that cost us. And when you, when you watch most Christians, if we're standing for justice today, we, we typically like to stand for issues that don't cost us a whole lot. You know, or, or that we're pretty far removed from. So any kind of reaction, it, it, it does, it's not going to affect us that much. We've kind of also almost redefined justice into less about preserving life and, and more about just other people getting what they deserve. Right? So, so then that changes the way that we respond. Then, then we end up thinking, well, what's just is for me to go point out where others are wrong right? and what they ought to get as a response to this when at the core God's justice revolves around preserving life. And we said it's, it's kind of ironic because you do see Moses taking the life of an Egyptian as he's trying to stand for the life of a Hebrew. And, and church, this is where we have to understand again, we are reading in the Old Testament pictures of something that is going to come. Right? Many of the pictures in the Old Testament that teach us about what, what the Messiah would eventually do, what Jesus Christ will do, many of these pictures are, are imperfect or incomplete. Right? They, they teach us about what God will do, but they also show we are not capable of doing it on our own. Right? As Moses is trying to preserve life, he ends up taking life. Well, God will raise up at one point further on, which we know to be Jesus Christ, somebody who will come to preserve all life, to, to make life with God possible. And he, he's not necessarily having to kill anybody as a result. In fact, it is through his death that he makes this restoration possible. Church, Jesus himself talks about what he has come to do in, as far as what God's justice looks like in in Luke chapter 4, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then at the end, it's, it's the first recorded instance of a mic drop in scripture where Jesus says, today this prophecy has been filled in your healing. And he rolls up the scroll and he sits down. Everybody goes, whoa, did that just happen? I mean, it, Jesus is, is showing us, yes, God's justice is costly. It cost Christ his life to die, to uphold God's righteousness for us. We see God's justice is relational. He didn't just cast us away in our sin, but he made a way for you and I to be made right with him. Paul tells us in Romans, while we were still sinners. And we see at its core again, God's justice preserves life. What he has accomplished through his consecrated image bearer, through Jesus, is the same thing that Moses is trying to show us. God preserves life. Because you and I bear his image. And if this is true, church, then, then, then what we practically do here at New River Fellowship, and just, just in general in our lives as Christians, again, we, when we're valuing the image of God, we stand for the preservation of life. Church, that is all life. I mean, I think one of the, the slogans that we, we heard to help us remember this is God is you know, for life from womb to tomb. That, that all of life 
bears the image of God. Therefore, all of life is what he desires to preserve and to uphold and to restore, to bring back into a right relationship with him. And church, if that is the heart of our God, who we have been made in the image of, then that is what we are to reflect. Because this is what we see God doing in the life of Moses as he's getting him ready to bring God's people back into a right relationship with him. We see him bring justice. We lastly see him bring something else. Verse 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left him? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he, Ruel, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner, a traveler, a, a journeyer in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So as Moses flees to Midian, you, you saw prior God bringing justice to his people. Now you see God bringing deliverance. In verses 16 through 19, you see Moses rescuing seven female shepherds and they go take uh, their flocks, they go back to their father, and they tell him. He's, he's astonished that they made it back so soon, almost like he knew they were going to have a tough time doing this. Like, if they're going to go to the, the well, they're probably going to encounter some hardship. So he's surprised why they come back. They tell him of what Moses did, and he says, well, are we not grateful people? Like, bring him back in. Get, get him over to the house. Let's, we need to feed him. This is verse 20. In verse 21, church, we get a, a powerful response where it, as Moses is invited into this house, he was content not, not just to stay for supper, but to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And, and church, again, this is where you see pictures of the Old Testament that are pointing us to, towards the coming Messiah. You see in, this, in these verses somebody that is grateful for the work of deliverance that God has done. And their response is to invite them into their house, into their lives. As a result of that, you see that the one who delivered the people is now living with them, and, and you see him get married to the daughter of the man whose house he's in, which is a sign of a covenant relationship being created. What does this sound like, church? This should sound like the way we, we have historically been taught and what we see in Scripture, how we respond to Christ's work in our lives. We see in John 14, 23, after Jesus has taught that he's the way, the truth, the life, the only way through whom people come to the Father, he shows what our response looks like. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
And then I love the ending. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. This idea that when you see all of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, the way you respond is to invite him in. And that God promises when you do that, I will literally come and dwell within you. Through, we know, the Holy Spirit, which establishes this covenant relationship between us and God. And, and even to take it a step further, church, at the end of this, you see that Moses and Zipporah have a son together. Last week, we talked about how you know, the offspring, the, the fruitfulness, the multiplying, that was a sign of the blessing of the covenant that God had with his people that, that in the, each instance last week of, of Exodus chapter 1 where you saw the people struggling with death, with persecution, with oppression, each time you saw they continued to be fruitful and to multiply because God is faithful in his covenant to restore his people. As you see a picture of this covenant being established of deliverance taking place again, what do you see? They have a baby. Fruitful and multiplying. The covenant blessing is in play. And church, just in case we're tempted to read this as just an interesting part of Moses' story and not part of God's deliverance work, Moses gives us three verses of commentary at the end of the chapter to say, no, guys, this is, this is God's big work at play. Moses says, look, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel, we were groaning to God because of our slavery. We felt our brokenness apart from him. God hears the cries and he remembers his covenant. In verse 25, God saw his people and he knew. Church, and that, that may be where some of you are at this morning and what some of you need to hear. God sees his people and he knows what you are going through. He sees where you are and, and what you are experiencing, your, your hurt, your pain, your suffering, your oppression, your fears, your worries, your struggles, your difficulties, your unrest. He sees this within you. And, and not only does God see it, he knows it. He knows the depth of, of how much it affects you. He knows the depth of how much it, it causes just all, all kinds of brokenness in other areas of our lives. He, he knows where you are at and what you are going through. And, and church, again, often it feels like we don't get to see God delivering us because we are expecting sometimes God to, to do this big thing, to, to, for this restoration to come as an event, as a, as a movement, as, a, as something active. And what we see in this passage is God is already at work restoring his people as he's raising up Moses. But Moses is nowhere near the people of God at this point in the story. Moses is in Midian, which most scholars estimate this is like 350 miles away. Okay, That would be like, I didn't study the map ahead of time. That would be like somebody up in, in probably Baltimore, Maryland, as in relation to here. This is how far distance Moses is from the people of God, where we may be feeling like, God, what are you doing? God, where are you going? And God is faithful, putting into action his deliverance work. And we're going to see this story start to unfold over the next several chapters as we go. But, but church, God, God sees you. God knows you. And he is faithful to restore his creation. Exodus 2, we see God is making his restoration possible through a consecrated, a, a set-apart 
image bearer who would bring justice and deliverance to his people. And so in our, our response time today, as the band gets back up to lead us in our last worship song, here's, here's how we can respond this week. I think first it's good for us to ask and just be honest with where we are. Where does it feel like God is not working in our lives? We began the service by sharing with one another where we've seen God at work. But, but church, where does it feel like God is not at work? Because oftentimes, as we've seen from this passage, we expect God's, God's restoration to be something big, to be an event, to be a movement, something that we should be able to feel physically. And we've seen God's restoration work starts internally. It starts with a person. It starts with a life being set apart, being transformed. So church, if we can identify where do we feel like God is not at work, hey, that, that might teach us, okay, I'm, I might not be looking for God's restoration in the right place on something like this. So, so ask yourself, where does it feel like God is not working in your life? Secondly, I think we, we can ask ourselves this question, where, where do we take justice into our own hands? Right? Where, where do we have a hard time trusting <laughs> God is at work? He, he is... He, is, he knows, he sees where we are at. Church, it's, it is tempting for us to want to fix things ourselves. So where, where do we tend to take justice into our own hands? And, and church, be reminded of this. When Moses does so, he ends up taking the life of somebody else. We were not meant to be able to do that alone. We are not going to do that perfectly. So where are we tempted to do that? And lastly, church, I, I would encourage you guys, pray to trust God's deliverance this week. The work of deliverance that we see right here, God through Moses, is hundreds of miles removed from the situation that God's people are currently going through. But God sees and God knows. And over the next several weeks, we're going to see God brings Moses right to them. God delivers his people. So pray, God, you may be doing a work far off. You may be doing a work that I'm not, I'm not capable of understanding at this moment. I don't see what it's going on. But God, that does not mean that you are not at work. Because pair this with what we learned last week. God is faithful to restore his creation. We are to trust his restorative work. Father, we thank you for your truth and your encouragement and your promises from Exodus chapter 2. Lord, we, we ask you to forgive us where, God, we, we struggle so much with this. Lord, we, we are people that we need things done immediately, Father, to, to be patient, to trust you, to know that you are working uh, not just for us but for everybody. Lord, it's that, that often means you, you call us to be and to remain in uncomfortable places, Lord. And it is very tempting for us to want to take things into our own hands, God, to not trust you with the work that you are doing. Lord, just as we saw last week, we see it again. You, you are doing your work, your restoration work through a person, God. You, you, even though we may not see an event taking place or a movement happening in our lives, Lord, you are internally changing who we are into being more like you. God, sometimes all you have called us to do is to give you the time and the space and the room to allow the Spirit to work. 
Father, if that is where we are at this morning, then I pray that you would, you would teach us to be patient in giving you the time and the space and the energy and the room for the Spirit to work in our lives. Lord, may we trust that if you are really at work inside of us, if you are really bringing your deliverance forth, God, it's, it is not a call to a passive lifestyle. You do show us where to move and where to invest and where to go and what to say. And ultimately, yes, Lord, you do show us what to do. But it begins, Lord, when we realize you are more concerned with who we are. Father, we, we know that this is not easy for us. We come to you. We are humbled before you. We ask for your, your help as we live this out this week. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.